You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days, so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. I'm Teresa Rebeck, and this is The Fabulous Invalid. Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, a Broadway-centric podcast where we take an in-depth look at the theater through interviews with actors, writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. I'm Jamie Dumont, recovering Broadway marketer, personal chef, and event planner. I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with StageLeft.NYC. And I'm Jennifer Samard, currently appearing on Broadway in Mean Girls. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Rob. Hi. Hi, Rob, Jamie. Hi. <laughs> well, um, we have a fun show today. We do. In a little bit, we're going to be joined by Teresa Rebeck, the playwright of Seared, currently at MCC Theater. And uh, that's a play I'm very excited about. Yes, yes. Jamie and I happened to catch a performance uh, last week, and it is really, really terrific. We were on the edge of our seats. Yeah, it's great. Well done. Looking forward to it. <laughs> and if you don't know, I mean, Teresa Rebeck has had an incredible career um, writing for the stage, uh, but also on TV um, and in film. So she's uh, a writer with many hats, and we look forward to chatting with her about all those hats. And in this particular case, she has a chef hat on. That's right. Oh, Jamie. Look at hey. you. Honey. Look at me. Honey, honey. Well, we can't let uh, this moment pass without acknowledging the fact that we are back in the pink room with Jennifer Simard. Hey. Missed ya. <laughs> and um, Jennifer, as we announced in our last episode, not that we broke the news, but um, has been cast in the uh, upcoming revival of Company on Broadway. I know. I'm so excited. Yay. So we just want to congratulate you, Jennifer. Oh, thank you. Yay. I know. It wasn't even on my radar. I didn't, It, you know, that, isn't that the way life works? You're right. just kind of going along doing your thing and then mm -hmm. the opportunity comes up. You're like, well, I just want to give a good audition and then... Yeah. Then all of a sudden, oh my goodness, it's happening. So I just, yeah. <laughs> Apparently you did give a good, a good audition. audition. Well, yeah. I think it was, you know, I think I even saw, I saw you because you came to see mm -hmm. Mean Girls That's and right. check out Renee Rapp. And this was before my, um, this was between my initial audition and my callback. And I, I let you know, I was very quiet about the whole thing. And I did let you know that I was auditioning. And I think I told you at the time that you really have to have an attitude of, um, just do your work as the actor, um, uh, the artist, whatever you want to call yourself. Mm -hmm. Just give your interpretation of how you see the role, and it either resonates with them or it doesn't, or if it's what they're looking for or it isn't, and you can't really worry about whether or not you're going to get it. 
because it's all a puzzle and mm. puzzle pieces and that's and I, I remember i had a very zen outlook about yes, it I know. And you commented on rob I, I was like I, I think i said if it's meant to be it'll be and if it's not it's not well i feel very lucky and i'm sad to leave mean girls you know this, those kinds of jobs don't come around very often if ever and i have a respect for mm -hmm. Every job I'm lucky enough to get, and you know, it, when it rains, it pours. And right. so I hope when I'm, I hope when the day comes when I don't have work that I, I won't be out of work long because uh, you know it's just it's a really great opportunity. Yeah. So got to keep swimming. Yes, yeah, you're never out of work. Swimming. Just keep, just I keep entertaining that, us, please. You know, please. I love it. I it's what I've always wanted to do. It truly is. So I'm really, we're all on a clock, right? So I, I really want to appreciate while I have it. I'm really grateful. I'm excited to work with this creative team. Marianne Elliott is a brilliant director, and I'm really, I was very fond of her at my audition. And um, I think her process is going to be one that I'm really excited to be a part of. And we're opening on Sondheim's birthday, which is 90th birthday. Pretty really, great. really yeah. exciting. Pretty great. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot so. of stars aligning. And you pointed out um, that it's the 50th anniversary of company, which is something I didn't even think about. Yes, yes. Which it, is an amazing timing. Yeah. And, I'll, and I think, because I'm not shy about myself in that regard I'm gonna it opens we're opening it the same year that I turned 50 so it's kind of for me it's kind of full circle I'm like am I gonna die soon like it feels it feels very it feels very <laughs> I took a dark turn pretty <laughs> well, quickly do you know what I mean you're like I, I do feel I remember watching the Tony Awards when Michael Crawford won for Phantom mm -hmm. and he said he's like due to the law of averages I'm due to be or based on the law of averages I'm due to be hit by a truck any day now <laughs> like that's what it feels like a right. little bit it's just lucky lucky yeah lucky. it's almost harder to handle success sometimes than the struggle because we all know how to get along when we're struggling but and so i'm really just trying to let myself respectfully and humbly enjoy it too yeah. you know is that say, is that fair to say of it's course. hard it's hard sometimes well, oh. we are going to enjoy you enjoying it yes okay thank you <laughs> all right well let's get to our guest let's mm -hmm. do it today we are delighted to be joined by Teresa Mbeck, the author of seared currently at mcc Thank you so much for coming down. Oh, thank you for having me. I think my my co-host might have mentioned this while I was out of the room, but um, I spent about a decade as a professional chef in New York City. It may have flown out of someone's mouth. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And in fact, they were urging me to try your your macaroni and cheese, which I'm trying to stay away from because you know it's the holidays and and I don't want to be indul too indulgent. But I do need to know what your secret ingredient is. Do you have a secret ingredient? I Well, it's not a secret ingredient because I use onions, which are typically in mac and cheese. I, I, everybody, Already it sounds fantastic. Everybody <laughs> does it differently. Like most classically, you grate the onions into the into the roux, which is the flour and the water, yeah. the flour and the butter mixture. Um, what I do is I caramelize the onions first, and then I put them in. So it gives a little bit more, as they say, depth of flavor. Jamie, talk slower. That sounds really good. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a, it's a, well, and Teresa, I made mac and cheese, obviously, because yes. it's a reference to your play. Yes, I think I'm going to break my rule and taste <laughs> mac and cheese. Good. Well, there's, well, Teresa, what's there. your secret ingredient? Oh, mine's boring compared to that, but it's dry mustard. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes, I'll have to send you some. Yeah. It's very, very, it's kind of adult back mac and cheese. You put a little, you have to grate a little black pepper and put dry mustard in it. And then there's also a little bit of like uh, hot sauce in it. Yum. So it's, but you have to be really careful with it. Because if you go a little, like if you go a little too lively, 
The kids won't eat it. <laughs> the adults love it. And the right. kids are like, My secret ingredient is selfishness <laughs> and powdered cheese because I get Kraft macaroni and cheese in a box and it's my box. No one's getting right. part of my, my oh, yeah. box. Yeah, I just oh, yeah. rip open that powdered cheese. I think cheese. this is where someone says, you do you. <laughs> yeah, well, it is a great, you know, I, I don't know anyone that doesn't love mac and cheese. I mean, right? it is truly the, the great leveler. Yeah. So, Teresa, I'm getting the sense that you know your way around a kitchen, too. Well, you know, I'm not actually all that good in a kitchen. My, my mac and cheese is good, and I, I do about eight things well. My husband is a really beautiful chef, mm. and he knows how to do all sorts of crazy things, and that was what I hear him talking about and listen to while I'm watching him cook. A lot of that made it into the play um, mm. and was sort of the one of the sources of uh, knowing that, you know, I, I'm, I'm always interested in passion, you know, like what really puts a person like kind of across the line into another universe. And my husband has a real passion for cooking. And I found it interesting. You know, I, I still find it interesting. I love watching Raul do it. What do you find fascinating about cooking? Um, well, I'm actually a person, aside from the eight things that I can cook, I, I generally am just like, I'll eat anything and I don't think about it, but there's something uh, ritualistic about uh, people who love to cook. There's a real, uh, life, life slows down. Um, they have a lot of, they have a kind of, there seems to be a, another world going on in their head that I don't participate in, uh, except for like on, when I make these five or six things. And uh, it seems uh, mysterious to me and kind of magical. And then it turns into a, a meal, which is something that gets offered to everyone to kind of participate in. It's also something that, this is something I've just noticed because I'm, you know, sometimes I, I do like, Teresa study, studies languages because I'm sort of fascinated. And it's one of the first things you learn about. Like any language you learn, the first words they teach you are like breakfast, lunch, dinner. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, can I have more water? You know, like it's yeah. all about, I don't know. There's something, it's so like the center of life in a yeah. lot of ways. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah. so for those um, of our listeners who haven't seen the play or, or don't know what it's about, um, plot-wise, could you give us a short overview of, you know, sort of what happens in the play so our listeners can, you know, oh, well, have yeah. more of a hook. Sure. Um, it's a play about, uh, it's actually a play about two guys who um, uh, decide, have have decided in the past to start a restaurant together. And they've been running this restaurant together for a couple of years. And they're really at the end of their survival uh, abilities. Um, one of them, Mike, has put all his money into the restaurant and is it can't and has not been able to stabilize the finances of it. The other one is Harry, who's the chef, and he's a brilliant chef. And um, he's one of those people who everything has to be kind of the way he likes it for him to do what he needs to do. He's a little bit of a, you know, he's not a perfect person by any means. Um, and they are... Um, at the end of their, their last nerves uh, around the survival issue, when uh, someone comes in from uh, New York Magazine and gives them a pop in the best bets column for Harry's scallops. And so they, they finally have caught a break and people are starting to, the, the crowds are starting to come to have the scallops and um, Harry decides he can't cook them anymore. And so it's all sorts of, chaos ensues as they try to wrangle survival out of this moment of luck. And I understand that all the food in the show is real. 
right? And just fun questions. What, mm-hmm. you know, does it get dumped? You know, does it get eaten? Does it, who does the shopping? Who does the cleaning? Um, it does not get dumped. <laughs> okay. It gets fed to people. Okay. <laughs> Good. It, um, it gets fed to uh, stagehands. I think yes. everybody in the theater who is working for much less money than they could make in any other field gets this really pretty delicious food. Yeah. Great. I love yeah. it. So Raul had to, to train then to, he to did. prepare these dishes. He did. He trained a lot. Yeah. He's tra- he had chops to begin with. He's somebody who knows his way around the kitchen. Yeah. Um, and he, but he, he worked with a chef, Ben Lipman, who um, is a really fantastic guy who used to work in a lot of different kitchens and, that, and then went on to doing uh, um, like private chef work. You know, he's, you know, he cooked for Robert De Niro for a while. We were all like, oh, what's he like? And he wouldn't tell us. Um, um, Those but, NDAs, you know? Yeah, right. Uh, and uh, and now he consults. You know, now mm-hmm. he'll go into people's houses and say, this is what you should be. This is how you do this. Yeah. Um, see you in, in a month. Uh, and he's a really lovely guy. And he taught Raul a lot of stuff. And Raul is very much, uh, you know, it's thrilling to work with that guy in every way. <laughs> Um, and he's a perfectionist, um, and he really wanted to do absolutely everything, uh, you know, because there is a way, at one point somebody said to me, what about, how are, like, normal people going to do this play? And I'm like, you don't actually have to make everything. That's Raul. Um, and because it's part of his musical, uh, his, his being, it's very, very musical, and so the truth of the sound of the performance got tied into the truth of the food. Yeah. That brings up something that I was struck with in the play, which is at the beginning of the second act, Raul prepares a dish and you watch him pretty much soup to nuts, do the whole dish. And it's like a ballet. It's like a musical number. It's, it's, It's extraordinary how that whole thing comes off. Yeah, well, he's such a consummate artist, I, and I, you know, I don't say that lightly, <laughs> but he, um, I, there was one point when I was watching him build and build that we had, we had the recipe. I described the recipe, which was uh, this thing about salmon with onion chutney uh, that my husband used to make for me, and then they came up with another way of making it, um, and then I watched them build the making of it with the music. Um, it's quite a long, it's longer than I uh, envisioned. Um, but it also, Raul, not only was making it so precisely, he was moving all over the stage with like, kind like a, like really physical enjoyment of it. And then he would, he was working on the plate, you know, he was making sure that the plate was beautiful, which I thought, I never even thought of that, that it, like in the creation of a dish, you would still be making sure that the the visual of the plate itself was um, it, it had the kind of perfection that the taste had and the movement had. It's you know it's extraordinary. I think it is extraordinary what he does in that moment. It is, and it's it's funny you you talk about the plating of it because a his plating skills are fantastic throughout yeah. the whole throughout the whole piece. But in that particular moment that you're referencing, it's so fascinating because we as an audience can't see the plate. Right, mm-hmm. necessarily. I mean, maybe some people that are a little bit closer, but but the point is, which I think is what you're making, is it's exactly who he is as a character. I mean, that's 
that it wouldn't the whole scene wouldn't work if he didn't right. fuss with the plate at the end because that's what a chef would do. And right. I also what I the other thing and I'm actually getting goosebumps when I talk about this because it was a right. very moving moment for me. And the thing that I think is so great his character I think is safe to say is a prickly guy, yeah. right? He's not, you know, he's probably not the most popular chef that people have ever worked with, but there's something about him that is very engaging. However, it isn't until that moment that we're talking about the top of the second act where you really fall in love with him. And it and you really, or at least I did, yeah. you really see the artist that he is. Yes. And you really see the human being that he is. And you think, oh, he's really a complicated fella. And then the whole second act just falls into place so beautifully. Thank you. I agree. <laughs> I, mean, I just think he's amazing. Uh, you know, I would tell everybody, I, obviously I'd love people to come see my play. I think it's really got something to say, but I'm like, what a privilege to work and with Raul and to have a chance to watch him do this. You know, you really do need someone capable of giving a tour de force and he, he just keeps going. He, it just never stops. Were you, uh, you know. with him when he trained with, when he worked with a chef? I was not. You were not you know, part of that no. process. No, I was there for a lot of the rehearsal where, and sometimes you'd go, okay, I got to leave because it was so much about <laughs> when he would pick up the, the gnocchi, when he would do this, what, you know, and there were some, luckily not as much, there were some burned fingers and some, you know, that knife that there's a moment in the play where it gets, I know it's nice, isn't it? Gets Rob, a get a test. I gay gasped when she, when she, when, 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 when she brings out the knives, there's a moment in the play people where, where the chef is presented with a series of excellent knives. Um, and if for those of you that don't know, a knife can cost anywhere from $100 to $1,000, right? It's, it's It can be a very expensive uh, endeavor to to outfit a kitchen with knives, with good knives. Um, and I did, did I not? Uh, did you I, did. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it's palpable. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But I even just, I, as someone who doesn't cook and doesn't right. derive any joy from cooking whenever <laughs> I do, um, in that that moment, could, could appreciate and understand what it would mean to him. Right. To yeah. Be with that. I know. Well, the, you know, also, in, in a, I'm, I'm so happy to have an excuse just to sing that man's praises. <laughs> I mean, because in addition to the grace and the complexity and the the joy and the prickliness, um, uh, there's the, there's astonishing comic timing, you know, and and that 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 just fed into all those moments like around the knives when he. And when he first sees them, it uh, it really brings down the house most nights. Yeah, it is. Right. It's a little bit of a Sweeney Todd moment. You know, there's <laughs> right. a little bit. He's of my friend. Just that he's such a hard guy to he, to calm down, and then she's like, "Here, look at this," and yeah. all of a sudden you see this that like the the knives soothe the savage beast. You know, the idea of right. well, there's such truth in that moment too, yeah. right? And I think that's. That's and, and and I like that you, there's there's there is definitely a playfulness with all with all the with all four of the actors. I mean, they're mm -hmm. all really. It really feels like you're in that kitchen. I mean, you are literally in that kitchen. But I mean, it feels. I felt like an employee of the restaurant. I really did at certain times. Oh, great! Um, <laughs> and everything on the set works. So the yes. stove works. I, I know several people said to me, "Oh, that's that." <laughs> Uh, and they're like, so that's a hot plate under there. And I was like, oh, no. No, that's this gas. That's a gas That's oven. a gas stove. Yeah, it's a gas stove and everything's working. And and I do think that there's a way to do it 
that's simpler for people who aren't as obsessive compulsive as Raoul is. Right. So there could be a production eventually of the of, of your play where it isn't a full working kitchen, right? Yeah. So that other theater companies can do well, it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the, the one of the, you know, this is like the third production. Um, and I have a feeling that in San Francisco, we were just talking about, I'm pretty sure that they used hot, hot plates underneath like, and I know that's we did something similar to that up in Williamstown, in Williamstown because yeah. uh, because of codes and stuff. Yeah. So it was William, it was San Francisco, it was the Playhouse, Williamstown, and now MCC. Yeah, was the was the and how long? So you got the commission from the San Francisco Playhouse mm -hmm. to write this play, and then what was that time frame like? It was very quick. It was you know nine months, something like that. It's uh, it doesn't, um, and then but then uh, we worked on it. Uh, I worked on it quite a bit there and it had a different ending there. Um, and so after that first production and I was like going, that's just not the right ending. You know what I mean? You could really, and then um, Mandy Greenfield was interested in it and doing in, in it. And she, a lot of times she won't program something unless she's heard a reading of it. And so after that, we did a reading up at Williamstown where I worked on the ending. I mean, I already had a new ending and then I kind of uh, polished it up a bit. Uh, and then the following summer, we, which was last summer, no, wait, not this past summer, the summer before that, we did a full production of it up there and I did some more work on it. So um, it, it's taken, since I wrote it, it's been about three years, you know, with these moments in between where, because sometimes like I'm working on a play right now and I was just like, I got to hear it. You know, you reach a point where you just... You can't, uh, and I used to, I used to work at the Lark a lot, <laughs> the Lark development playwriting place. Uh, and cause you would, you could go in there like every Wednesday and go, here, will you read these pages for me? And really good actors would just read 10 pages for you and you'd go, thanks. And then go home and be able to move on. But cause sometimes just the fact that you, you can't, no matter what, you just, you have to hear it every now and then. Anyway, so, so after we did that one production, and then it wasn't until I had a handful of actors a year later uh, up at Williamstown, even though it was just a day and a half, I could do some more work there. I mean, it gets to a point where you just got to stop writing and just wait until you have some. Cause, because there's a lot of times what I end up doing is, you know, I have a page in front of me and I go, take these three words out, move this over here, you know, try this, try this, try this. And it's sort of like sculpting a little bit. Mm. Do you find that you get to a point where the play is finished or do you want to always keep working on it? Uh, you know, I, I'm not averse to just keep working on it, um, depending on what your situation is. Um, there are certain things, like I wrote this play a while ago called Oh Beautiful, which was about, basically, it was like 10 years ago, and it was, you, you, the subtitle could have been How We Get to Where We're Going, because it was really about... Uh, you know, it was about a t small town in Delaware where it was, a lot of it took place in a high school. And, um, you know, the people, it was like the rise of the Tea Party, the rise of the bifurcation of the American character. You know, the, you know, the rise of really, you know, there was bullying, there was too, much, too many guns, there's a terrible accident with a gun, and there's a kind of rising rage between everybody in the play. And I'd love to see that again. That one seems like that one. I don't know. Yeah, that one. But, I, like, if I were to do it again, I would, like, go, what do I need to, what else do I need to do right now? to layer in these questions a little more. I mean, it was, 
Um, you know, like here's another example. I wrote this play Spike Heels, which was about sexual harassment in 1992. I was really young. And, um, and it was, you know, it did, I don't know, it got kind of, it was sort of like, uh, dismissed by some of the New York critics because they were like, this could never happen. I mean, seriously, no one was interested in that question. People are, people are looking at it now and going, we should revise, revive this. And I think, well, yeah, for sure. I mean, it was done all over the world and a lot of students who have grown up on those monologues and things in that play. And so, but I kind of go, I wrote that 25 years ago. There are chunks of it I could write better now. And so I did take a pass at it and just made it better. You know, so there is kind of every now and then um, there's, oh, I know what I was going to say about how beautiful, that there's a bunch of language in it, like, because there's always language in my plays. It's kind of the way I talk. And there, so now it's often done in colleges. And some of the colleges are like, can we take the language out? And I'm like, well, you can take this language out. You can't take that language out. I do think that there's like an advantage to being a living playwright and being able to look at every given situation and say, yeah, you can do that. You cannot do this because that ultimately um, distorts the the act the play itself. But I'm not I'm not like David Mamet or Edward Edward Albie. God bless God rest his soul. I love that guy. Um, but he was real like no, you must not touch a word. And we're all like, oh, come on, Edward. You know this isn't. Anyway, you've also worked extensively in television and film, mm-hmm. right? Where the writer has sort of a different it, it, it has a different sort of. Uh, terrain, I guess, right? I mean, there's well, you more people own, involved, you right? Don't and you don't own your, own, your words. You don't own right? your words. Uh, right. You know, so that, and that Do you think that has painful. informed your willingness to be a little bit more um, well, open no, to edit your work? For, or For me, it's more about uh, the kind of musicality of things, which mm. changes in different situations. You know, like if, and sometimes, you know, my friend Julie White uh, told me one time that she had found this old script that was of, you know, some Terrence Radigan play. I can't remember which one it was, but it was like the professional ed- edition. And she was like, does that mean there's an amateur edition out there? And sure <laughs> enough, there's amateur editions of like straight plays, which are like, okay, if you're not really a professional actor, don't try this monologue. We're going to take that monologue out. That's too hard for amateurs. <laughs> um, you know, so, but I, it's sort of a little bit, I'm, I, I, yeah, I think it's funny too. We were, we had a good laugh at that. Um, but there was a kind of, there's a sense sometimes where I feel like if, if it's something that the, no matter what the straining is going on, the actor can't, you know, or there's some issue, then I don't, I, for me, the important thing is the success of the, each individual production. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means a little bit of, um, being, uh, breathing with you, with yeah. the present. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, I, I'm still stuck on something with spike heels. So mm. I just want to go back for a second. <laughs> because you said, um, and I may get your words incorrect, but you said something about you want to make the play better, right? You mm. think you can make the play better. And is that because you think you're a better writer now or because the dialogue around sexual harassment has changed so much? It's thanks. That's a very elegant question. And it's actually both things. Uh, I mean, because now there's a kind of different, there are different questions that are showing up in this discussion. Uh, some of which I'm intrigued by and, you know, like in questions around things like Cis, the word cisgender, you know, which has never been fully addressed, you know, and there, there's a character in this play who has a few things to would have, have a few things to say about the word the cisgender, and this seemed like too perfect an opportunity to not see if I could make that work. So there are some things that you want to uh, include because they would be included in like the 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 ongoing conundrum of of. What is sexual harassment? What is the appropriate response to it? Uh, I, 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 you know, one of the things that I've always I liked about that play is that, in fact, that our heroine Georgie colludes. I mean, she's enraged by it, but she wants to keep her job, and so she kind of colludes with what's going on, which women do all the time. I mean, I think that the story that sexual harassment means you, you if you're faced with it, you have to either stand up to it and lose your job and they, you know, blah, 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 or you're, or you don't get it. You don't have any rights. I think that's just not the truth of the way women live their lives and deal with this stuff all the time. And, um, so I think that that's still true in the play and, um, that's, you know, so mostly I, um, wanted the play to have its original integrity, but there were some sections. The other thing that is true about, you know, because that was my first play in New York. I was very, very young. I was 27, and I had a lot of people pushing and pulling at me, and I had a lot of people giving me notes and insisting on rewrites. And I was fine. And so sometimes I, when I hear it or see a production of it over the years, I've thought, Jesus, you know, all that extra stuff is in there because somebody else wanted it in there. And this is, I'm at a point where I can just go, okay, I'm taking out everything that I never wanted to put in in the first place. And then I'm using this opportunity to put in some other things too, because it's, um, you know, it is to me, especially the, this question um, is just underexplored still. And, uh, I, you know, that's wo a woeful truth for me. You know, that we still aren't talking about it the way we should be. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Well, thank well, you for, for indulging me on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you, you've talked about, you know, various plays that you've written. There's a lot of development, research and development, I assume, when you're doing these plays. Yeah. So what is the craziest thing you've learned about the culinary world since you've developed this play? Seared. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's a very good question. And... What is the craziest thing I've learned about the culinary world? I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot of interesting little things about like how you make uh, menus, how you print menus, how you um, how dishes are dealt with, um, how dessert is dealt with. You know, because I always thought you know you go to a restaurant, you assume that 
everybody's making everything back there. That turns out not to be true. Uh, most most restaurants ship in. You you know. I'm shaking much. my head. Is what I'm doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. you like go. Oh no! You go out and you buy all that stuff, and then you make this stuff. Um, Which is in your play. Yeah. He yeah. takes a box of pastries, right? Right. He clearly didn't make, I think they're they pastries. Source it. Yeah. 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 It's outsourced. You outsource yeah. a bunch of things. Yeah. Um, and uh, I learned things like, I don't know, I learned how much donuts cost. <laughs> <laughs> you mean how much they cost to actually make? No. Or how much they cost, cost uh, retail? <laughs> yeah, retail. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I'm with yeah. you. I didn't know those things you just mentioned yeah. about menus, et cetera. So that's right. new. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah. Seeing the play was itself you know, yeah. a, a learning experience for me. It was at a, a right. window into a world that I had never really thought critically about, uh, which was fascinating. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> what else did I learn? You know, when I was writing the play, I... I was exploring all those things more and more than I, when I got into rehearsal with it, I thought this is a divorce play. This is a play about two people getting a divorce. Mm -hmm. And one of them is desperately trying to save the marriage. And the other one doesn't know how much trouble the marriage is in. And so the first person brings in a therapist and they also, <laughs> and they have a kid. I mean, there was a kind of, uh, yeah, you know oh what I God. mean? Yeah. Was, uh, I, know, yeah. I love that. <laughs> right. I mean, but so there was one point when we were first working on the first production of it, where I was like, guys, when those two start to fight, you have to find, you know, you have to find your corners. You have to step back the way people do when a divorcing couple takes over and cannot stop themselves from fighting, yet the, everybody else kind of slinks into a place to hide. Um, and so that was interesting. I, I didn't fully understand uh, how much this play, and I think that's one of the things that I, I'm proudest of. Um, and I think that it's really a play about these people um, and about survival and the survival of the spirit and love, you know, um, and uh, the mystery of of how much we can take. The other thing that I didn't see coming um, that I discovered was this question of how what you have to do for your art to survive, you know, yeah. because I do feel like, you know, I've always wor worried at the ending. I love the moment when Rodney says, you have to bow to it big, because I thought Harry, for all of his uh, perfectionism and his great gift doesn't understand what he has to do to break his own heart, that there's something about the breaking of your own heart um, that you do, you, you, I know you know this, that you do to keep that talent alive and moving forward. Is that true? Yes, That's you're making I'm... me weep. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Well, it's an interesting question of when does the, when does the artist become an artist? Right, because at the end of the, I don't, I don't, yes. I don't, I don't want to give it too much away, but there's a moment in which somebody sort of rises to the occasion, and there's a conflict about what that actually means, and when, right. when is the when authorship is, of the right. Art so itself. when yeah, is too. when is a chef a chef? Is a chef a chef when they go to culinary school or when they open up their own restaurant? Is an artist an artist when they sell their first piece or when like it's? And I feel like there's you're 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 dabbling in that a little bit at yeah, the very I end think of the play. So. At the end of the play, I think Harry has to do something he's never understood how to do, or that you know, and that there's something about the breaking of the self that adds, you know, that feels uh, like an outrage or something you're not going to be able to survive, or you know, um, when in fact it's just a another opening of a door. Harry, mm -hmm. Harry says this thing in the, early in the play about 
there are so many choices in life. There are so many things to explore and you have to, you have to, there's only so much you can do. Uh, you know, he has, I like, oh, I will say another thing I discovered was how powerful butter is and how mysterious butter is. I've, I heard a lot of people talk to me about that. You, 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 I'm going to ask you to validate this, <laughs> that people don't fully understand how butter does what it does. So I have a, I have a story about this. I, um, I worked many years as a chef, um, and then I, I switched careers and I became an event planner for a catering company. And that catering company had a restaurant. And in that restaurant, they had a takeout portion of it. So they had like a refrigerated, you know, display of like lunch foods. And which was something I'd never really been a part of, you know, that the idea of I worked Packaged mostly food, in yeah. I worked mostly in private homes. Um, you know, I didn't work for Janeiro, right. but you know, right. I, I, I worked Somebody for, I'll tell you who I worked for later, because again, I, I <laughs> signed an NDA. Yeah. Um, and this person is quite famous. But I but I spent my most of my time in catering. My point of the story is when I came to this catering company that had the display food, they sold chicken. That was their number, roast chicken was their number one seller. And I remember very clearly my first day walking past the prep table where they had all these chickens just come out of the oven and they poured vats of melted butter over the chickens. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I said to the chef, what are you doing? Is that about flavor? He said, no, the butter keeps them moist. So when the chickens sit in a refrigerated unit all day long, they dry out. And when the butter is in them and they come to room temperature, the butter softens up and moistens the chicken meat. Well, I have to say, I have a friend who runs a pretty well-respected, like, little boutique restaurant in Park Slope. And she's like, she's told me it's an old restaurant trick that the last thing you you, you toss on whatever you're cooking is every butter. is yeah. butter. You yeah. just toss it on yeah. there because butter, no matter what it is, butter makes it taste better. It makes it <laughs> taste better, better, but it's, it's, but it's weird, butter. right? Yeah. Oh, it's man. a lubricant. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an emulsifier. It's, mm. it's like, it's unbelievable what butter does. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. You could be a no. play. I'm going to start putting it on my skin before performances. <laughs> exactly. Maybe it'll make me even better. Yeah, it'll right? make you younger. Yeah. But I mean, it makes you better. It'll make your performance it, better, That's maybe. what I'm saying. That's oh, what I'm saying. Yeah. All right. Salty. Well, it's got that kind of mystery to it. Yeah, yeah. butter will get you that Tony. That's the, the elusive <laughs> um, butter trick. Um, okay. You've been very generous with your time, and I, we have a couple more questions, but I can't sit here and talk to you about this play without talking about scallops. Mm. Oh. So... Now the scallops, as you mentioned, play a big part in the in the in the show. Um, he refuses to make the dish, which you which you said. Yes. What I found interesting about the scallop, because I I looked up scallops, because when I walked away from the play, Rob and I had a conversation about the scallops, and I said, you know, it's really interesting that Teresa chose the scallop to be the dish that um, that is so controversial. And we had a conversation about are scallops easy or hard to prepare, and then I said to Rob, you know, I always think of a scallop as being throughout art and antiquity. It's everywhere. And Rob said, no, 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 you're thinking of the clamshell. I said, no, 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 Venus is, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure Venus is on a scallop shell, which I looked up and she is. But what I don't think I knew, which I now know, is that the scallop is often represented a pilgrimage or a journey. Did I you didn't not- know that. That was the secret truth that the play knew that I did not know. Wait, you did not know <laughs> I that? I did not know that. I picked it because... They're hard to cook. 
you know, and, and there are a lot of specific things. I mean, I talked to a bunch of different people about them and there are just a lot of specific things you can do to a scallop mm-hmm. and that's why you don't get them very often. You yeah. Know? They're hard well, they're to easy to kill. I mean, it's yeah. an easy dish. It's a, this was the conversation that yeah. we had because Rob was under the impression that they're easy to make. They're yeah, easy to make. I was wrong. And, and well, I think they are, if you know what you're doing, yeah. but they, you can mess them up like that. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they're it's hard he's right. Everything Harry says is right. And they're hard to source. They're yeah. you know they yeah. are they they get mealy really fast. Yeah. You know when when uh when Mike shows up with the scallops near the end of the play um and Harry is sort of transfixed by them it's because they're really good scallops, you know. He, 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 Harry's not making this stuff up. Well, it's fascinating. So, twice mm-hmm. now you've you've mentioned to us the play revealing something to you or knowing something about itself that you, the, the yeah, writer, didn't, didn't even know, know right? Yeah. The idea of it being sort of a divorce yeah. setup and then this idea of the scallops. Yeah. Do you find that, that that happens as a writer, that that oftentimes you think you know what you're doing and then suddenly you step back and say, oh, wow, no, this is something else. Yeah, that happens all the time. That's yeah. actually why I like writing plays. Uh, I mean, I like writing, I like writing in general, um, but I... You know, as opposed to like Dorothy Parker, who was like hated writing but loved having written. I'm actually somebody who I think it's fun um, and interesting and uh, sometimes very difficult. Um, but um, I worry when people want to see outlines and stuff. I, you, the part of the problem with outlines and treatments and things like that is that you don't, um, you don't, if you plan everything before you've written it, you don't discover the things that it's in there that, you know, it's, I used to, I want to teach, I talk about the secret subject, you know, like you really don't know what the secret subject of anything is if you outline it first. And so you have to leave some room there for it to reveal itself to you because I, and Shakespeare actually talks about this and I can't remember where, but the writing teaching you what you are writing about. And I think that that's why, you know, I, I like straight plays for like when they go there, you know, that it's, um, our movie films sometimes go there too, you know, a kind of, there's this discovery where you just think it's so organic and strange, you know, (laughs) that the storyteller didn't understand that that was going to reveal itself. Mm. Well, I have to say it was my experience of seeing Seared that I thought it was one thing when it started. And in the end, I walked away. We had a whole like deep conversation yeah. on the way to the train about how it was so much more than just the story, right? That there was so much more there about art and commerce and passion and the relationship between these characters. And that, you know, revealed itself to us through the course of watching the play. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I think we've made it clear that we're a big fan <laughs> yeah. of, of, the play. of your work, of the play. Yes. your work, and particularly of this play. Yeah. Um, we have one final question for you that we ask all of our guests, and that question is: What was that moment or that experience that made you want to work in the theater? Did you have one? Oh, uh, you know, I have to say, I if, yeah, it was for me. It was. Um, it was student matinees at Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, where, you know, I was raised in Cincinnati in a Catholic, you know, in a Catholic Republican household and I had to go to church six days a week. I mean, I come from like a real crazy alternate, you know, identity. Um, but every year uh, you if for five bucks, you, you had to bring your five bucks and your permission slip and they'd put you on a bus and 
take you down to Cincinnati Playhouse in the park. And I saw, you know, I, I saw really beautiful productions of uh, Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams and Moliere. Those are the ones I remember. Mm-hmm. And a couple couple Shakespeare's. And I it was truly astonishing. It just like broke me wide open. Uh, and uh, and I and I, I I thought they were gods. I thought the playwrights were like that was a it was the biggest aspirational thing I could ever dream of doing. And I didn't dream of doing it for a long time because it just seemed you know. But when it finally occurred to me to maybe try to do that, uh, everybody thought I was insane. I still think I was insane, kind of. I think it, but I I did. I saw it as like a mighty, a really mighty task. Thank you so much Thank for joining you. us today. Thank yes. you. Thanks, Thank you, you guys. Rob here with you may be wondering. Perhaps you noticed by the background noise, but I've stepped outside of our usual studio, the Pink Room at O&M, to record this segment at Orso Restaurant, which, in addition to a scheduling convenience, just feels right, given the subject matter of our conversation in this episode. After all, Seared is set in the kitchen of a small restaurant in Brooklyn. The hyper-realistic and detailed set design by Tim McAbee is mesmerizing and quite transporting. Sitting in the audience at MCC's intimate black box theater, you feel like you're actually peering into a real kitchen. That's also because the kitchen on stage works, and it's used. As Harry the Chef, actor Raul Esparza prepares some seven dishes over the course of the show, most notably at the start of Act 2, when he cooks a salmon dish from start to finish. You can hear the oil pop on a pan, you can smell the onion sizzle, and you see the dishes come into creation as he plates them and sends them into the dining room off stage. You may be wondering, as we were, how Raul prepared to do this real onstage cooking. As Teresa suggested and a New York Times profile illuminates, he worked with a chef consultant, watched cooking shows, and practiced making the dishes at home as if he were in a restaurant kitchen. Then he observed the kitchen of a midtown seafood restaurant during the dinner rush, meticulously asking the executive chef questions about every detail of how he maneuvers around the kitchen. That eagle-eyed attention to detail pays dividends in his performance. While Teresa jokes that they didn't actually have to cook everything for real on stage, the fact that they do adds immeasurably to the realism of the piece. And, well, leaves many audience members hungry. I personally was eyeing the gnocchi. Cooking on stage can be extraordinarily impactful, especially when done as expertly as Raoul does it in Seared. I'll never forget David Cromer's magnificent production of Our Town at the Barra Street Theater. In Act 3 of an otherwise unadorned, abstract production of the play, as is usually the case, as the deceased Emily goes back in time to relive her 12th birthday, a curtain was pulled to reveal a realistic kitchen set with an actual stove on which Mother Webb cooked bacon the smell wafting through the theater, hitting you as strongly and vividly as Emily's memory. Of course, just this past season on Broadway, there was a restaurant on stage at Network, though no visible cooking. And Ann Eller prepares some cornbread in Oklahoma. When she was on our show, we had fun asking Mary Testa about her method for cracking eggs on stage. The character of Jenna and Waitress does some pie preparation, though not to completion. In 2015, Carrie Mulligan sautéed onions in Skylight. In 2014, Hugh Jackman famously gutted a fish in Jez Butterworth's haunting play, The River. And in 2008, Faith Prince gutted a fish in the musical A Catered Affair. At least that's what it was like during previews. By the time the show opened, she cooked an egg. 
Eileen Atkins peels mushrooms in a loop in Florian Zeller's The Height of the Storm. And earlier this month, I saw Richard Nelson's The Michaels at the Public Theater, which takes place in the kitchen of a family home, with the audience seated intimately in the round. Over the course of the play, which is set almost in real time, one character prepares a quiche, pops it in an oven on stage, and takes it out when it's ready about 20 minutes later, puts it on the table for dinner, during which several other characters consume slices. Cooking and eating are such integral parts of our lives, so it's only natural to see these activities reflected back on stage. But much like that old show business adage to never work with children or animals, the interpolation of live cooking adds a tricky technical element to any production. Fortunately, in Seared, Teresa Rebeck couldn't ask for a better actor than Raul Esparza, who chops, sautés, and plates like a pro. Jennifer here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can hear us anytime on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and the Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman and Charles Van Kirk. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. If you like what you hear, again, please rate and review us on iTunes. And be sure to tune in next Wednesday. It's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.